This is They Create Worlds, Episode 110, Books of History. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we're done talking about companies for a bit, so we get to talk about something else entirely. Books. Who really wants to talk about game companies when you can talk about books about game companies? Especially since, did you know I wrote a book? You wrote a book? Yes, I did. They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, volume one, 1971 to 1982. We've mentioned it several times before, but you can never mention a good book enough times, right? Probably not. Absolutely. Uh, available for, uh, direct from the publisher CRC Press, Amazon.com, other major online retailers. But because I wrote a book, it seemed like a great opportunity to go back and look at some of the books that have been written over the years about video game history. It's still a relatively new field. It's still an evolving field. There have been books written at various times by different types of authors trying to reach different types of audiences. There have been some very good books. There have been some very awful books. There's been mostly some books in between those two extremes. Certainly, I used many of the books that came before when working on my own book. But at the same time, I had to be very careful about using facts from those sources. And I often had to go back to original sources, uh, like any good researcher does, newspaper and magazine articles, interviews, archival corporate resources when those exist, because there is still a lot of confusion in the literature that's come before and some inaccuracies, quite frankly. And so we want to kind of look back at some of that material and celebrate what these books did well, because just about all of them did at least something well call out respectfully the things that were done less well, and kind of explain why video game history literature has developed the way it has. Seemed appropriate since, uh, you know, book. Makes sense. So in the course of all of your research, you've obviously purchased quite a few of these books, or at the very least, checked them out from libraries. Yes, I have legally purchased every single book on video game history I have used in my research, I promise. It's okay. There are fair use exceptions for researchers. It's fine. I've read them all. I have copies of them all. I've bought many of them. I've not bought some of them. Uh Uh-oh. It's fair use for research. It's okay. Hmm. (laughs) And yeah, I've gotten some through interlibrary loan. I've gotten some. They're just out there on archive. I've bought some of them over the years, and there's a fair number of them, especially today, and we're not really going to go into detail on the stuff that's come out in the last few years because there's so much of it. But in the very early days of video game history scholarship, there were very few books, which lends itself to covering all of this in an episode of our podcast. Certainly. So I guess really the question everyone probably wants to know, what was the first book on video game history? So the first books to cover video game history came out right in the middle of the first video game fad. It comes in fads now. Well, yeah, because as we know, because we did a like multi-part episode on it, 
there was this whole crash thing that wiped out the industry in the United States. Oh, yeah. That was so long ago. Yeah. So the first video game success, the post-Space Invaders success, the period from 78 or 79 up to about 82 or 83, was kind of the first really big boom of the video game fad. There'd been a series of rising and falling boom bust cycles before that, but that was the big one that really put video games into the public consciousness in the United States. And since pretty much all of the early history books were written in the United States, it is appropriate to talk about the American aspect of it all and not to necessarily pay as much attention to what was going on in Europe at this time. So by the time Pac-Man came out, 1980, video games had truly penetrated American society and everybody was playing them to a degree. Probably not quite as true of the elderly, but young professionals, teenagers, and children were all very much engaged with this world of video games. And it was a world that was a very competitive world in this first iteration, because, of course, the arcade was the primary place where you were playing these games, or the coin-op space. Maybe you played it in an arcade, maybe it was at the local supermarket or convenience store, but you were primarily engaging with coin-operated machines. And the sole overriding purpose of coin-operated machines and playing on them in this time period was very much about high scores. You weren't playing games for completion in this period of time. Most games didn't even have quote-unquote endings or stages. You just played it, you cleared the screen, or cleared the level. Some of them did have stages by this point. And then you moved on to the next screen or level that was more difficult and then more difficult and then more difficult and then more difficult until it's finally too difficult. Even a game like Scramble, Konami Scramble that we've talked about, which was one of the primordial shoot-'em-ups that did have stages. When you got to the end of the game and you destroyed the enemy base, you just started over from the beginning at a higher difficulty level. No congratulations, a winner is you, no elaborate cutscene. That's how the games were, whether they were single screen or multi-screen, whether they were single stage or multi-stage. You played them, you started over, you kept getting more and more points, and when you finally died for the last time and didn't put any more quarters in, you got a high score, you recorded that high score, and gone on to fame and fortune amongst your friends. That was video games. I mean, there were home video games too, and there was the early computer game industry, but the home video game industry, when it peaked pre-crash, peaked at about $3.2 billion. Arcade video games peaked at over $7 billion, and that's just isolating the video games from the pinballs and the redemption games and everything else. It wasn't even close. Arcade culture was video game culture. So why am I going on and on about this? Because we're here to talk about history books, right? Right. Well, the very first video game history books were hybrids between telling the history and giving you the goods on the games so you could get better at them. Because that's kind of where the interest was in publishing something on video games. So it's kind of akin to having a strategy guide in book form. Oh, by the way, we're going to give you some history as to why things developed this way so that you know what to expect and why things are the way they are. Exactly. It was kind of this hybrid form because especially after Pac-Man came out, 
there was great demand for video game kind of strategy guides. Now, they're not strategy guides in the way you think of a Brady game strategy guide today. It's this big, thick book of stuff you could just find on the Internet if you wanted. That's another issue, though. But this big, thick book with maps and walkthroughs and whatnot, because, of course, these games were still very simple. Many of them were still single screen. But Pac-Man in particular had patterns. We've talked about the patterns of the ghosts because we've talked about Pac-Man before. So there was a pretty foolproof way to play a perfect game of Pac-Man if your reflexes were good enough. Because the maze was a known quantity. The paths were a known quantity. There was some randomness in when the fruit appeared in the middle of the screen, but the play field was a known quantity, and the way the ghosts would move was a known quantity because they were in very specific patterns. So this was a game that was very beatable if you knew how to do it. There was a limit, because due to memory limitations, Pac-Man would eventually roll over. You'd hit a kill screen. On some of these early games, you'd hit what they call a kill screen if you advanced through too many levels because, you know, everything's in multiples of eight or whatever. And when you hit screen 255, which they're programmers, so they count from zero. So screen 255 is 256. If you're in something that just has memory going up to 256 whatever, which was very common back then, then when you flip over to that 257th bit, it's not there, and it rolls back to zero, and you get weirdness. So Pac-Man was a game, is a game, that it is possible to quote-unquote play a perfect game of, and it's possible to train yourself to play a perfect game of it because there really isn't any RNG. Because of that, there was a huge cottage industry in Pac-Man strategy guides. One of them even hit the New York Times bestsellers list. It may have even topped the New York Times bestsellers list briefly. Other games also got strategy guides, and even Space Invaders before Pac-Man got some, but kind of Pac-Man was the beginning of that. Even though not every game that followed it was a game that had patterns, it established this idea that people are chasing high scores, people want to learn how to get the best scores, people will pay money for books telling them how to get the best scores. Since I haven't interviewed these authors, I don't know... If the history stuff was about making it feel like the player was getting more value for the book because you could pad it out with some of the history and it feels like you've got a greater value, or if these guys were like, well, just writing these strategies is boring, it would be a lot more fun to also talk about the games and how they came into being. You know, I don't know where that particular drive came from, but that's kind of how the first video game history books came together. And the first two, as far as I know, I mean, I could be missing something, but the first two that I really think of as books that had anything to do with video game history both came out in 1982. I don't know exactly which one was first. I know one of them was published in April 1982. I don't know exactly when in 1982 the other one was published. So I don't know which one technically hit the newsstands first and the bookstores first, but they were pretty close to each other. One of those is The Winner's Book of Video Games, written by a guy named Craig Kuby. That's the one that was published in April. The other one, which is the one that I think is more famous and more well-known, is Video Invaders 
by Steve Bloom. The Winner's Book of Video Games is mostly a strategy guide. It's 270 pages. It covers a wide range of games. What makes this one unique compared to a lot of the other even how to play and how to win at the game kind of books is that it wasn't just discussing the games that were the new hotness in 1982. It described games going all the way back to Pong. It had a lot of 1970s stuff, not as much as the 1980s, but it had Pong, it had Night Driver, it had Seawolf, it even had Death Race in it. So it had a lot of these really old games in it, as well as Space Invaders, Pac-Man, Asteroids, Donkey Kong, all of this stuff. And then it also had a section on home games which was definitely a lot more unusual back then because all the emphasis was on how to get best at the arcade games because those are the ones that there was a tangible reward for. I mean, it's nice if you could play Space Invaders on your console better, I guess, but there's no fame and fortune in that. It's not like you can beat the game. It's not like later games like your Mario's or your Zelda's or your role-playing games, where there's a tangible reward to playing it better, you may just actually beat it and see the ending screen. The reward was getting the high score in the arcade, so there was comparably less attention paid to how to play the home video games. But he included sections on all of the major systems of the time, even the Odyssey 2. No ColecoVision in there because it came out right before ColecoVision because ColecoVision came out in August 82, but it had the VCS, the Intellivision, and the Odyssey too, and it had those sections as well. So it was very much focused on that. But for those games that he had information, he provided a little bit of history of where they came from. I mean, he couldn't necessarily do that with some of the Japanese games where he just didn't know that kind of stuff. But he included information on the games. Like in Centipede, he mentioned that it was programmed by Donna Bailey and even referenced an interview she gave in Smithsonian Magazine about the game. He referenced Replay and Playmeter magazines, the trade publications, a lot to indicate how well some of these games had done. So it's very light on history, but it's just about the first time that somebody even tried to make the connection of You know that great game that you really love? Well, this is the person that made it. This is where the person got some of the idea for it. Sometimes if he knew sales figures, he'd put that. He even conducted some interviews specifically for his book, Berserk, for instance. He actually interviewed Alan McNeil, the guy who created that game, and got some information from him on the making of the game. So these early books were from people that were dialed in. They tended to be people who were journalists in the industry for the the nascent video game magazine scene that was just starting to develop in 1981-82. So they had contacts with some of these companies, and they were able to do some interviews. That's what makes the Winner's Book of Video Games very interesting, because it's mostly a strategy guide. It's like 90% a strategy guide, but it's just got these little stories And some of them were wrong, and some of these stories persisted for a very long time, which is interesting. If we're to divide this into phases, and I'll take a second to do that real fast in the middle of this, you kind of have three phases. You have this early phase where it was really new and exciting. A lot of it was mixed in with how to win kind of stuff. 
and the research wasn't necessarily super rigorous, but they were trying to provide this added value. Then in the next phase, you had journalists that were serious about doing the research, but they were journalists, they were working on a deadline, they weren't spending 10 years of their life doing this, and so they were often using these early sources, this first wave of sources, in their work and not approaching them critically and not supplementing them with more original primary sources. And then you kind of had the third phase, which, you know, we're still kind of in today, and I don't really have any way to define that third phase, except it's it's something different. There's more scholarly work being done. There's more careful work being done. We still haven't shaken off all of the errors of the past, but there's more of an attempt to reevaluate older sources and come to something that is uh, somehow more accurate. So one example from this book that is still very pertinent today is, like I said, death race is in this book. We've talked about death race, I think. I, I hope we have. But it was responsible for kind of the first moral panic in video games. It was the first game where people felt that there was violence being depicted in it that was not good violence to depict. They thought that you were running over people. They weren't actually running over people. You were running over monsters, and all the promotional material made that clear. I mean, this wasn't just after the fact. It wasn't that they said, oh, my God, people are getting mad. We need to come up with a cover story. It's, uh, they're monsters, I promise. Yeah, monsters. It really was meant to be monsters all along, but because of the primitive state of the graphics, they were just stick figures. I mean, the on-screen graphics, you couldn't tell they were monsters. It looked like running people over, and it was just, oh, my God, it's terrible. But anyway, he covers Death Race in here. One of the things he mentions is that a guy that he talked to, an operator named Dennis Moore in the village of Twain Hart in the middle of nowhere, California, way up in the hills in the Sierras, told him that when he first saw the machine, it was called pedestrian and that the screams and squeals made when the monsters were run over used to sound more human-like and were later changed. This story about Pedestrian, about Death Race being originally called Pedestrian, has survived through multiple, multiple books and articles and profiles all through the 90s and the 2000s and even into today. I actually peer-reviewed a book, and I won't say which one, uh, just because, you know, I'm not trying to call anyone out. But I peer-reviewed a book before publication that included this tidbit that it was originally called Pedestrian. And I actually called it out in the peer review and said, no, let's take this out. And, and to their credit, they did take it out because it doesn't make any sense. Nobody was taking it from this book. People were taking it from Kent or whoever else later on took this fact and ran with it and just kind of assumed that they had a good reason for it. But I traced it back to the original source. And the original source is this. We know because we have access to replays and play meters, we know when the game was first announced in the trades because we have all these 70s issues now. So we know that when it was first announced in the trades, that it was called actually Death Race 98. For whatever reason, they had a 98 on the end of it. But we knew it was called Death Race from the moment it was out in the public. It was never announced for public consumption under any name but Death Race. Now, sometimes games have different names when they're being prototyped. That happens. 
Yes, we have the same thing with consoles. Yeah, it's not unreasonable to assume that would have had a different name in the prototype phase and may have gone out on test under a different name. But who's the source for this? Now that we have this book, that I've gone back to this book, we know who the source was. The source for this was, as I said previously, Dennis Moore in Twain Hart in the middle of nowhere and nowhere near where Exidy was located. When companies put games out on test, they test them close to home. They test them at their local arcades right by them. There is no way that Dennis Moore, operating his small game world in Twain Hart, had a preview copy, had a prototype of this game on test. The only time he would have had this game would have been after it was already in general release. And we know, because we have the trade publications, that it was never called anything else in general release. So he's wrong. He's misremembering. Maybe he saw a bootleg or a clone that used the name Pedestrian. He may have really seen something. I'm not saying he's lying, but it clearly wasn't the Exidy Death Race. But this story got passed down from this book on and on and on, and it became one of the pieces of evidence that Death Race was trying to create a game where you ran over humans. So it's damaging that this story has persisted. That just gives you an example of, you know, how these early books can sometimes lead you astray. On the other hand, Craig Kuby was the first guy doing any of this, and he did conduct some of his own interviews. And where he conducted his own interviews, that's a valuable primary source because he's talking to these guys right after they made these games, right when everything was still fresh in their mind. So it's still a very interesting source, even if it has some of these issues. You just have to be mindful, as with any source, of what's going on there. So that's that book. Video Invaders is a little different. Video Game Invaders was the first real attempt to tell the story of how video games came into being. It was written by a journalist, Steve Bloom, that wrote for video game magazines. I think he was an editor at one of them as well. So, I mean, he was highly placed in video game journalism circles at this time. And he actually set out to tell the story of video games, how they came to that point. But you can tell, I don't know if this was his call or whether it was his publisher's call, but you could tell that the appetite for that still wasn't completely there because that's only half of Video Invaders. Well, it's it's more than half, I should say. That's about three quarters of Video Invaders. Three quarters of Video Invaders is history. And then the last quarter of it is strategies, how to beat the games. And you figure that that's in there because they figured that they had to have that in there to get the sales. People aren't interested in pure video game history at this point. So there's got to be that little how do you beat them hook at the end, right? Right. You got to have that thing that makes people go, why would I want to pick up your book if I'm not going to learn something to beat this game? It's just telling me about how this game made. I don't know. This game just came out. Why do I care? Exactly. It's video games. It's that new fad thing. It's just a thing that's going to be around for five years, burn out. No one's going to care about it in 10 years. Maybe gets a footnote in history. Right. People aren't definitely not going to do a podcast about it. <laughs> right. So he was very interested in trying to figure out the origin of the games. And the interesting thing is, he did a good job considering the limited resources that he would have had available at that time. 
he starts in the 60s and he starts with Space War. By this time, part of that reason is that he probably discovered that is there had been an article written by Martin Gretz, one of the creators of the game called The Origins of Space War that had been published in one of the video gaming magazines. So the story had gotten out there. I'm sure he probably saw that article and that's why he knew about it. But he starts with Space War. And then he talks about Ralph Baer and the Magnavox Odyssey. It's it's kind of interesting. There's this idea that Ralph Baer was the unknown father of video games, that Nolan Bushnell had completely stolen his thunder, and nobody knew who Ralph Baer was until, like, the late 90s or something like that. But he was actually very well known to those few people that cared. In the 1970s, any article in a newspaper talking about this brand-new video game fad that is happening, any article written in the early to mid-70s talking about video games, almost every single one of them not only mentioned Ralph Baer and his Odyssey, but many of them actually interviewed Ralph Baer. Really? Yeah. He was known at that time. His, he kept his name in the papers. And Video Invaders includes a big section on the grand debate of who really invented video games, Ralph Baer or Nolan Bushnell. Bloom talked to both of them, talked to both of them about uh, what they remembered about, you know, what they did. And then he tried to decide what to do with that information. And he was known at that time. Maybe there was a brief period in the late 80s and early 90s when Bear was forgotten. But he was actually very, very present in the very early literature. And he's present here. So this book does Bear. It does uh, Nolan Bushnell. Uh, The very interesting thing is Steve Bloom is the only person that ever interviewed Bill Nutting. Really? Yeah. You would have thought someone else would have interviewed him around the time or something. Well, but at that time, this was the really only serious history that was done. What about later on? No, he was never interviewed. People probably didn't even necessarily know where to find him. It wasn't nearly so easy to track down people that weren't still active in the industry in some way pre-internet. Bill Nutting, after uh, he ended his video game stuff, he went to Kenya for a while uh, as a missionary, helping run a flying service for missionaries out there. And then he retired to Arizona. So he was just living in retirement in Arizona. Would he have talked to somebody if somebody had darkened his door? Probably. But in the journalist phase, phase two of the history, in the kind of late 80s through the early 2000s, in that phase... It was journalists doing a lot of the work, and the journalists, I think, were largely relying on contacts with people they knew, with companies they knew. So it was either somebody that they had interviewed directly before, so they already had their information, or they would reach out to a company that was still existing and be like, hey, this guy that used to work for you, are you still in touch with him? I'd like to talk to you. They weren't going to explore the vast breadth of America trying to track down somebody that just wasn't around anymore. And then in 2008, Bill Nutting died. So by the time someone like, say, me was getting involved in interviewing, he was already gone. I've interviewed his widow. I've interviewed his son. I've interviewed members of the Nutting family. But by the time I was doing it, he he was gone. I don't know how Steve Bloom tracked him down because even in 1982, he was out of the industry. But he actually talked to Nutting. There's only a couple of quotes. He does intersperse quotes in his book. There are only a couple of quotes from Nutting. I'm sure by now the full interview doesn't survive anymore because it's not like he would have been preserving his notes for posterity. Nobody was thinking of that. Yeah, so it's interesting some of the people he talked to. 
And he gave us a more complete picture of the industry than anyone else at that time, but it's still not a very complete picture. But it's the first time somebody really tried to do much of that. And he spent a lot of time on people that were currently in the industry because he was an industry journalist. So he would go to the shows, the trade shows like MOA and CES, and he would interview some of these people at the show and he would get some of their stories. So there's background uh, information on the couple of the founders of Activision, Alan Miller and David Crane. There's interviews with some Atari people. There's a long interview with Eugene Jarvis uh, of Defender fame that's very interesting. He did a few chapters that were kind of narrative history of the very early days. And then he did a bunch of like interview chapters where he was talking to people who were still active in the industry in the 80, 81, 82 time period. Again, it's a good slice of life thing. That's what these books are most useful for now from this very first wave, because they're interviewing these people while they're still making the games, while everything's still fresh. So you kind of get an idea of who some of these people were and where they were coming from at the time, even if the larger history isn't nearly as good because he's not got access to a wider range of archival sources or he's stuck in his little bubble of who he covers and he doesn't necessarily know what's going on in Japan, what's the story there, or, you know, that kind of stuff. The wider influences. Mm Mm-hmm. So those two books come out in 1982. There's another book that comes out in 1983 created by another guy that is a journalist in the industry called Screenplay, the story of video games. Very simple title. Screenplay is definitely targeted at a younger audience, I think it's fair to say. But because he was also a journalist in the industry, he did talk to people and he did interviews as part of his work. It's not a pure history book again, though this one is not a strategy guide book. This one is kind of presented as almost as a technology education book. I mean, it's not a textbook or anything, but there's a whole chapter on how games work. I think it's trying to get that educational angle into it. And then he does the same thing that Bloom does. He starts with the Founding Fathers, so to speak. He doesn't hit on Space War, but he talks to Ralph Baer. Like I said, Ralph Baer is actually very present in these early days. People know who that is. He talks to Ralph Baer. He gets the full scoop on that. He talks to Nolan Bushnell and gets the full scoop on what Nolan Bushnell wants the story to be. You know, he talks to these guys, and the book is largely based on his interviews with these personalities. It's very surface level kind of history, but they both kind of run through the highlights. You know, first there was the Odyssey, then there was Pong, then there was Space Invaders, then there was Asteroids, then there was Pac-Man. That's kind of the track that they take. And then he goes into a lot of detail and screenplay about designing games. And like I said, he's in the industry too, so he's interviewing people. A lot of this design stuff you know, I think is also about being kind of a more educational book. I mean, it's not presented as a textbook or anything, far from it. But I think that's part of the idea that, you know, you're getting behind the scenes on how these things work and how they're designed. And, uh, you know, and we're going to throw in some history, too, because why not? It's more of an inspirational book, I would say, if you're geared at a younger audience. I want to get young people to be excited about technology. They're obviously going to like video games because who doesn't like video games who's young? 
So if I can sneak in a little bit of education here of, hey, here's the history, here's how some of this works, maybe I can spark someone to go, oh, I want to make a game like that, or I want to do Uh something that's really like my favorite whatever. Okay, I'll go investigate this aspect of the technology and learn more. Absolutely. And then he also, which is interesting, does include a chapter on the controversy surrounding video game and video game addiction and video game violence, which was certainly an interesting thing to be talking about in those days. So once again, it provides a nice snapshot. You can see what some of the controversies and some of the larger issues were within the industry in 1982. So even if not all of the history in these first three books lines up properly, they are great looks at kind of what the scene was like circa 1982, 1983. What the social, political atmosphere was. Mm -hmm. How did the public view video games? Yeah, exactly. What were the kind of things that are talked about in video games back then that coincide with what we talk about video games now? I'm sure that back then they're like, oh no, violence. And today, I'm very sure they go, oh no, violence. (laughs) Right. That's what makes these books useful. And then kind of the final book of this first period is a book written in 1984 called Zap, The Rise and Fall of Atari. The first three books that we've talked about here are books that are capturing a new craze at its height and are trying to understand this new craze. How do you play these games? How do you experience these games? Who makes these games? How does this even happen? Here's some of the biggest hits, and here's how you play them, and maybe a little history thrown in. Well, Zap comes out in 1984, so that's post-crash, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So Zap is kind of the culminating book of this first period. It's written by another journalist, though in this case not a video game journalist. The first three books were written by people who were dialed into the video game industry at the time. This fourth book was written by a guy named Scott Cohen, who was a journalist, but he wasn't a video game journalist. He was interested because here was this company that rose so far so fast, fastest growing company in America to that point since a record since surpassed. How did this company take off like a rocket and then utterly crash? And so it's more interested in the business of it. Would it be fair to say that that's one of the first books to really look at video game from a business standpoint, not just a creative standpoint? Yes, I would say so. I mean, the earlier books, you know, they give sales figures here and there and that kind of thing, but it it really is kind of more focused on the business of Atari. Zap is a controversial book. There are people that have written books on Atari history, particularly Marty Goldberg and Kurt Vendell, who wrote Business is Fun, who are very down on Zap. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it was written right after the company fell apart, and he really wasn't able to interview anybody who was part of the fall. Your Ray Kassars, your Perry Odax, your Dennis Gross. These are people that we've mentioned in our many, many Atari episodes, but people who were CEOs, CFOs, presidents of the company at the time. A lot of his stuff on the rise of the company is very interesting because he interviewed Nolan Bushnell and Steve Bristow, who was an early engineer, some of the early coin op distributors. He interviewed people that were very involved in the building of the company. So there's some value there. But when it came to the fall of the company, he didn't interview anybody. 
the only sources he had is whatever was being reported in the papers about the fall of the company. So the later part of the book, he does a lot of speculating about what went on at Atari. And most of that speculation is flat out wrong. Because it's too close to the events. There's no perspective. There's no inside information. There's no real understanding about what happened. And he basically comes down on the side of blaming Periodak for everything. The reason he blames Periodak for everything is uh, even he admits it in the book himself. Well, Periodak was hired early in 1982. All of these problems started in 1982. And then Periodak was fired because of all of these problems. So if the company wasn't having problems before Periodak joined the company, and if the company's response to the problems was firing Periodak, well, logically, Periodak must have been the problem, right? Right, especially if you're trying to take a very simplistic view of what happened. Exactly. And that's not fair. And I've actually interviewed Periodak. He was the president of the Consumer Products Group during this time period. But I haven't just interviewed Perry. I've also interviewed Dennis Groth, who was the CFO, and Ray Kassar, who was the CEO, and James Morgan, who was the CEO who replaced him, and Michael Moon, who was president of the consumer division. And I've also referenced heavily Connie Brooks' biography of Steve Ross, who was the CEO and chairman of Warner Communications, the parent company. In that book, she had a whole chapter on Atari, and she had access to the lawsuit that was filed by the shareholders after the stock price, you know, went all to hell because of all of this stuff. And so there's under oath testimony in there from Michael Moon and Ray Kassar and some of these other people. So with all of these other sources, I have a much clearer picture of what happened. And I won't repeat that here. We have four episodes devoted to Atari. We have three episodes devoted to the crash. If you want to know what I found out about this, just listen to those episodes. But the point is, there's a wider and richer group of sources to draw on to examine that period that Cohen didn't have. So he gets a lot of flack for the last couple of chapters of the book, which are are just awful. Really, it's hard to blame the guy. It's sort of like if I were to come to you, Alex, as you are right now and say, Alex, you're a fantastic guy who understands all this stuff about video game history. THQ, they died in the last five years. Why don't you tell me why they died based off of all you know and what we know right now? Exactly. And I'd be able to give you an answer. I'd be able to talk about what's been reported in the papers or in the industry trades, and I'd be able to talk about some of the high-profile flops they had. But I have not interviewed uh, the CEO at the time, Brian Farrell. I have not interviewed the people that were inside the company. I don't know what was going on internally. I just have the outside picture. So if I were to write about that now, a lot of what I would say would probably be correct but an equal amount of it would probably be wrong. And that's really because you don't have the primary sources. You don't have the people who are there in the moment. What are those little seeds, those little problems that don't seem like problems at the time that just build up over the years and the momentum of them is so great that they just have these impacts five, 10 years down the line that just take the entire company with it? We see that very often with many of the companies that we've talked about, and we see it day in and day out in our own social political lives. Absolutely. So I don't think it's fair to judge the whole book based on the last couple of chapters, though it is very fair to criticize those couple of chapters. So that's one aspect. The other aspect of it is some very prominent people at Atari were not interviewed, and I think their feelings were hurt. Al Alcorn was not interviewed for that book. And Al Alcorn is a great guy. 
He gives interviews to anyone who asks. He has been very candid and very thorough in presenting the Atari story as he remembers it. And that's all wonderful. I have nothing bad to say about Al Alcorn. But he definitely is not a fan of this book. And I think in part because he wasn't consulted for it. And considering that he'll talk to anybody, that does beg the question, why wasn't he consulted? He should have been. He absolutely should have been. But I think some of the Atari people that weren't consulted on the book feel like it was a quick hack job. You know, this was a guy that wasn't really part of the industry, didn't really want to understand the industry. He just flew in and out, did a smash and grab on some interviews and told a story and it wasn't fully accurate and it missed stuff. I'm not saying that Al Alcorn should not call out Cohen for that. Al Alcorn should definitely call out Cohen for all of that. However, when a historian is evaluating the book as a useful source, that doesn't matter. If it's missing part of the picture, we get those other parts of the picture from other sources, because if you're doing the research right, you're consulting many, many sources to put this puzzle together. So just because we say not everyone was consulted and he missed stuff and there's things that are wrong, from a historian's perspective, that doesn't mean you just throw the whole thing out. It means you just come into it with both eyes wide open. And there's certainly value to say that even with those last chapters, at the very least, you get an idea of what the public perception of the company was at the time when it crashed. Who were they blaming publicly? Sure. It's dictated right there in front of you in black and white. Exactly. The reality of the situation may be different. That's immaterial. There's still historical value in knowing that at the time, this is what was believed, what happened, and that affected people down the line in these different ways. And that all has historical interest to it. Exactly. But even some of the information then it's still very good because there are block quotes in it. From several individuals that weren't interviewed very often in other sources, Steve Bristow is one that comes to mind who has now passed away. He died the way back in 2015, I think, maybe even earlier, but he died a few years back. He interviewed Don Osborne, who was the director of sales for the coin-op division, and he died of a heart attack in like 1982 or 1983. I think it was 83. Nobody ever interviewed him historically because he died while he was still working at Atari. But Cohen interviewed him for his book, so there's a couple of anecdotes from Don Osborne in there. For some reason, and I don't know why this is, it's part of the smear campaign against it, Kurt Vendell and Marty Goldberg don't trust the interviews in it because they say that they've been told that Cohen fabricated some of those interviews, that he didn't really talk to all of those people, but fabricated interview quotes. But here's the thing. There is not one interview quote in there that contradicts something that one of the interview subjects said in another source. That doesn't mean they're all accurate, because as we've talked about many times, Nolan Bushnell has an interesting relationship with the truth sometimes. So I'm not talking about whether what the people are saying is true, but what I'm saying is all the Nolan Bushnell quotes include stuff that Nolan Bushnell has since said in later interviews. Howard Delman, I think, is interviewed in there, and Howard Delman tells the story of how he discovered Atari and how he ended up joining Atari. And when Howard Delman is given interviews more recently in other sources, he tells the exact same story. If he were making up these interview quotes, there would be contradiction between what the person said in Cohen's book and what the person has said in other sources. There are details in those block quotes that he could have only gotten from actually interviewing those people. 
you know. Certainly nothing to say that what they remembered at the time versus what they remember now changes. Well, but what I'm saying is, is it's not different. The fine details might be different. The overall message is the same. Well, what I'm saying is even the fine details are the same. If he were fabricating quotes, Mm -hmm. then other sources where those same people were interviewed, you would notice discrepancies. There are no discrepancies. So where did the uh, story of them being fabricated come from? Exactly. I don't know. It's just something that people have said, but I don't know why. And it doesn't make sense to me. Cohen is not 100% accurate tell-all true history of Atari and should not be read by anyone in that vein. However, a lot of it is still very good history. Not all of it, but enough of it. So that's the first phase. The second phase of books are books that came out in the early 90s to the early 2000s, just a little bit over a decade which were better researched, were researched over a longer period of time, but were largely done by journalists and therefore have some of their own limitations. The earliest of these, at least from the perspective of the books that were actually very well known, is a book written by a guy named David Sheff called Game Over. It's a history of Nintendo up to about 1992 because that's around when it was published. There was later a second edition that extended it technically to 1998. The interesting thing about the Game Over book is that at this period of time, Nintendo had become the biggest, most profitable Japanese company. It it didn't maintain that, but for a brief period of time there, it was the most profitable Japanese company. It dethroned Toyota, which was the traditional champion. It was the biggest, most valuable, most profitable Japanese company. It had completely revived an industry in the United States that had been dead a couple of years before. It was one of many Japanese companies that were, quote-unquote, invading America and taking over America, just like the car companies were doing and the electronics companies and all these others. So it was a big story for so many reasons. And it was a big enough story, not so much because of video games, but because of the larger implications of Japanese-American trade imbalance, which was a humongous story all across the United States at that time. It was a story that was bigger than video games, but it happened that Nintendo, by being the most profitable Japanese company, was right at the center of this story. We wouldn't have gotten this video game history book if not for the larger implications of Nintendo's success, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was a journalist. He approached it as a journalist, and he got access to all levels of Nintendo. Nintendo cooperated, and Nintendo agreed to be part of this. So it has amazing information out of Japan. He talked to the Yamauchi family, not just Hiroshi Yamauchi, but his daughter and his wife, his family, is a big part of it. He got to talk to everybody top to bottom at Nintendo of America, Minoru Arakawa, the president, Howard Lincoln the senior vice president, marketing people, salespeople, Howard Phillips, and the game evaluating people. He got to talk to anybody he wanted at Nintendo of America, and he got to talk to a lot of people at Nintendo of Japan, too. He talked to Hiroshi Emanishi, who was basically Hiroshi Yamauchi's right-hand man. He was in charge of the general affairs department, so he was running PR and sales and marketing and everything, I think, reported into him. He wasn't directly doing all of it, but it all reported into him. 
he got to talk to so many people. And so what you get is an unprecedented in-depth inside look at a video game giant and at Nintendo. Anything you ever wanted to know about how the company operated, how its sales force operated, how its marketing operated, how its game evaluation and publishing operated, it was all in there. It's still a phenomenal book today. You know, he's a good journalist, a good writer. But you start to see some of the problems that infect the second generation of books right here because he is a journalist and he is largely basing his work on what his subjects say to him with very little cross-referencing in other sources. His book is generally good and accurate, but it has inaccuracies born from the fact that he didn't pursue a lot of this deeper. And I think with some of the stuff going on in Japan, I think born from translation confusion. Because even though he's talking to these people, you know, the different languages, I think some stuff literally got lost in translation. One of the big examples of the former, where he's just talking to people, is he does have a big section, a big chapter, a whole chapter, on Nolan Bushnell and the rise and fall of Atari, because he uses that as a way of setting the stage for Nintendo, you know, sweeping in and saving everything. Most of that chapter is based on talking to Nolan Bushnell. And as I said, Nolan Bushnell has an interesting relationship with the truth sometimes. He shapes the narrative in the most advantageous way at the time. Exactly. So if you just let Nolan Bushnell be Nolan Bushnell and tell his story unadulterated, you get some real history, but you also get a lot of stuff that is, I think it's fair to say, embellished. That chapter has a lot of inaccuracies in it. An example of the other problem, the Lost in Translation problem, a good one is the story of the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. He tells the history of Nintendo pre-video game. I mean, he goes all the way back to 1889. He tells the story of the rise of Nintendo. And he talks about Nintendo getting into video games. And he talks about how Yamauchi heard about the Magnavox Odyssey and then Nintendo became the distributor for the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. This is still something you'll see in sources even today that'll indicate that Nintendo distributed the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. There is no evidence this is true. It's hard to completely prove a negative, right? Because when you're trying to prove something didn't happen, all you can do is show all the evidence that you've been able to find, but then someone can be like, but there could be a warehouse someplace, and there could be five Nintendo Odysseys hiding in it. Proving a negative is a no-win proposition. Prove to me that leprechauns don't exist, or unicorns, or some other mystical creature. Exactly. But here's what we know. We know that Nintendo actually produced the light guns for the original Magnavox Odyssey. Because they already had a light gun design that they used in their very popular beam gun series of uh, little toys. And so they adapted that for the Odyssey system and they actually created those for the Odyssey. We know that they licensed the Odyssey technology to create their first video games, their first home video games, I should say. The Color TV 6 and the Color TV 15. We know that they created those games themselves in partnership with Mitsubishi, but because of Magnavox and patents and blah, 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 they did license the Magnavox patents. We also have Japanese sources that indicate the company in 1975 that was distributing the Odyssey in Japan was a company named Jolive. 
And then there was, I think, also a second company indicated in some sources that was also distributing. But neither one of these companies are Nintendo. And we know that there has never been a Nintendo-branded Odyssey seen anywhere. There are fanatic Nintendo collectors that document every single last piece of Nintendo ephemera that has ever existed. Florent Gorge has documented all the different types of playing card sets they've released and all the different Lego sets they released, Lego knockoffs. And all of this, there's the Before Mario blog that chronicles in painstaking detail all of this stuff. Nintendo ephemera is huge. And there has never been a Nintendo-branded Odyssey, whether by branded, I mean it actually says it on the system itself, or a box that has a sticker on it that says distributed by Nintendo. Never, ever, ever. But think about it. We got our hands on that extremely rare prototype Sony PlayStation Nintendo thing. We have our hands on it now. Right. And all of the other systems that were distributed by another company in Japan, we've seen examples of that. We've seen Japanese Vectrexes and Intellivisions and VCSs and all of these systems. There are examples of them that exist, and you can confirm the company that distributed them. There's none of this for Nintendo and the Odyssey. So it's pretty clear what happened is that Chef got confused, probably due to translation issues. And yes, they did learn about the Odyssey, but they didn't license the Odyssey to release in Japan. They licensed the patents to the Odyssey technology so they could create their own system in Japan. And I'm sure the complexities of that just got lost in the translation. But that's another one of these things that persists, and you still see it today. Nintendo distributed the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. It's like, I'm 99% certain they didn't. Since it's a negative, I can't completely disprove it, but I'm 99% certain that's wrong. So Chef is great for a lot of things. It's just, again, you have to view it with some care. The next book to come out, which came out in 1994, is really kind of the first real attempt to do a pure video game history. You had the video game histories in the early 80s, but those were combined with other objectives. They weren't pure history books. You had the journalistic accounts like Zap and Game Over, but those were telling a contemporary journalism story first and they were telling a history story second, and they were very reliant on direct interviews with participants without much cross-referencing and verification to figure out the bigger picture. The first book that was really trying to be a video game history was the book Phoenix by Leonard Herman. I know Lenny now. We haven't met in person, but we correspond via email. We've communicated. He's a great guy, and he's passionate about this stuff. He definitely qualifies as an enthusiast. He's not a trained historian, which is fine. But he had been peripherally involved and peripherally aware of what was going on in the video game industry in the early 80s. He went to trade shows like CES, and he got literature, you know, all the marketing literature that all the companies would hand out, and he saved this stuff, and he archived it. So he had a wealth of primary source documents detailing when hardware was released, when games were released, what the prices were when they were released, all of this kind of stuff that he had gathered firsthand himself back in the day and had been gathering ever since. It was kind of the first attempt to use documents and not just rely on recollections. Uh, In fact, he didn't interview anybody for his book. He, He relied entirely on the materials he had. 
So it was a serious attempt to chronicle the history, and I do mean chronicle, which I mean this thing existed at this time and cost this much. It doesn't go deeper than that. The book was done year by year. So the first couple of years he combined, like he combined 72 to 74 into one chapter. But then like 75, 76, 77, 78, each year was a chapter. It's basically a litany of all of the hardware that was released in that year with the price and everything else. And occasionally prominent pieces of software, but it really concentrates on systems and peripherals for systems, first and foremost. And it is very focused on consoles almost exclusively, occasionally arcade stuff to put it into context, but really focused on consoles. So it's an interesting chronicle, but it doesn't go very deep. There's no whys. There's very little how. It's just kind of this was released here. This was released here. And there's value to that. I'm not in any way disparaging his work because that's what he wants to do. And he does it effectively. There are some errors, just like there's always errors. My book has errors in it. I've already discovered some things that are errors. Books are always going to have errors. But for what he chronicles, Linny chronicles it very well. It's very accurate at what it does. But it's only looking at a very narrow portion of the industry. So he's updated it three times since. Phoenix 4 is the most recent one. So he's kept this going into the 2010s with new information. I think the latest one goes up to 2016, if I remember. So, I mean, it gets pretty recent. He likes to call himself the first video game historian, and one can quibble that in this way or that. But I think it's true to say that he was the first one that was like, I'm going to try to document some of this stuff solely from a historical perspective, not because I'm chronicling some business curiosity, not because I'm showing people how to beat these games, but just, I'm going to make a history book. So, you know, he deserves credit for that. The next book, kind of in this time period, is a book that originally came out in 1998 or 99, and then was reprinted in 2001. The first time it came out, it was called The First Quarter, which is funny, because it's about roughly the first 25 years of video game history, and, you know, arcade games quarters. So it was The First Quarter, ha ha ha. And then was re-released as The Ultimate History of Video Games, which is the name it's known as now. That was written by Stephen Kent, who was a longtime journalist of the video game industry. So again, this is a guy that was dialed into the people and dialed into the companies because he reported on them for a living. But he's a journalist. He's not a historian. The great thing about Kent is he got by far the greatest array of voices to talk about the industry that had ever been assembled up to that time in something historical. He talked to Nolan Bushnell. He talked to Al Alcorn. He talked to Eugene Jarvis. He talked to Trip Hawkins. He talked to the founders of Rare, one of the few times that Tim Stamper has ever done anything. He talked to all the big wigs at Nintendo, Minoru Arakawa and Howard Lincoln, Nintendo of America, I should say, not Japan. He talked to all the Sega people, Mike Katz, Tom Kalinske. He talked to the Sony people, Sony of America again, Steve Race and Jim Wims and Bernie Stolar. This is the first time that somebody has actually gone to a lot of the people that were leading all of the big companies and a lot of the people behind some of the biggest games at those companies and got their stories and weaved them together into an overall narrative. 
That's a big moment. Phoenix may have been first just in terms of being interested in chronicling this, but it's very narrowly focused. This is looking at the industry more holistically, trying to identify some of the trends in the business, all of that kind of stuff. Now, it's still mostly on the arcade and then later the home console. Like once the crash happens, he doesn't care about arcade anymore. Essentially, he cares about consoles, but he barely talks about computer games. So there's still places where he narrows his focus, but it's a substantial book. It's over 500 pages in paperback. He covers a lot with his time. Kent, unfortunately, still remains a gold standard. I'm not sure it's ever gone out of print. I mean, you can still buy it on Amazon. It's never gone out of print. Because it was the first kind of very concise history of the industry like this, it became something of a standard. It's been used in college classes. It gets so much wrong. Look, I use Kent a lot in my book. You'll see Kent cited to a lot in my book because he talked to lots and lots of people and he included huge block quotes from the people he talked to in the book. So you get so many facts straight from the people that experienced them. Some of those facts are even true. But the important thing is he's got so many perspectives that are so valuable. So I use Kent a lot. But because he was a journalist again, I think the journalistic mentality, and I could be wrong, but the journalistic mentality, unless you're doing a real deep investigative job, is that you get as many sources as you can on the record. You go with their versions of things. I mean, you confirm things with at least two sources most of the time, but this is a book, so he's not trying to strictly write a journalistic thing that is 100% accurate, but you get a few other sources on background that you can easily find, and then that's what you go with. That's basically what Kent did. So Nolan Bushnell gets to dominate the narrative of Nolan Bushnell, and Trip Hawkins gets to dominate the narrative of Trip Hawkins, and if he wasn't able to get a hold of somebody, then other people that were adjacent to them and just, oh, I heard through the grapevine that this happened, get to tell the story of that person. So it's horribly inaccurate. Other than the block quotes, Kent is unusable. Look, he took on a grand project at a time when you didn't have easy access to archival sources, pre-internet, pre-digitization, uh, not strictly pre-internet, but Definitely pre a lot of sources being just available online. You couldn't just do what we do today. I mean, today, you know, I want to look at the old computer magazines. They're all online. He didn't have that. So he only had a limited ability to go back and do primary sources because if he was going to research that stuff in libraries and archives, it would have taken him way past his publishing deadline. That would have been a lifelong job. It took me 10 years to amass the sources I used to write my first book. He wasn't going to spend 10 years of his life on this project. So when I badmouth the book, I'm not badmouthing the author. Without Kent, there would not be nearly as much interest in video game history as there is today. Even though it's still relatively small amount of interest, he created a lot of that interest with his very readable, very interesting book. He made it accessible. He made it something mm -hmm. that people can look at and go, hey, this is interesting. Exactly. He came up with what sources are out there, and he did the best thing he could at the time. That's how it is with practically anything. Right. You do what you have best at the time. I'm sure 200 years from now, maybe we have some sort of magic lens that can see any point in the past, and we find out, oh, this history thing's wrong. This history thing's wrong. 
Alex's book is completely unusable because of this, 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 and this. That kind of deal. We don't know. We're doing what's best at the time. Exactly. Even think about this podcast. If you've been listening since the beginning, listen to episode one. Listen to us now. <laughs> yeah. You do the best you can at the time. That's so, really all you can say. Exactly. And he was diligent in tracking down interesting people. He's the reason that certain names became names that everyone knows that is interested in the history, like a Michael Katz or a Tom Kalinske. So he deserves credit for that. But please, if you get nothing else out of the entirety of not just this episode of the podcast, but the entirety of our podcast, all 100 plus episodes and however many more hundreds in the future, if you get nothing else out of any of it, then just get this one thing out of it. Don't take your video game history from the ultimate history of video games. Enjoy the book, love the stories, know that there's a lot of myth-making going on, use the block quotes in your own research if you're doing your own research because the block quotes are fantastic. Just don't make that your source of video game history. Don't go someplace and say, well, Stephen Kent says, and it's like, no, please don't. I'm not saying turn to me, just me instead. There are other great books out there, too. I'm just saying don't use Kent. At least if you want the factual results as we know it right now. That's right. That's Kent. The other big book from this time period is High Score, which the second edition came out in 2004. The first edition came out a couple of years before that. High Score is very different from all the other books. It was written primarily by Russell DeMaria, who was a big strategy guide writer back in the day and who was very interested in the history of the computer game industry, with some input from Johnny Wilson, who is the longtime editor of Computer Gaming World. The thing that makes High Score different is it's more of a coffee table book. It has a lot of beautiful images in it. Because they were from a computer game background, they really covered the computer game publishers. So they talked some about Atari and arcade games and Space Invaders and all of that, but they interviewed a lot of founders of prominent computer game companies, Broderboon, Sierra, Epics, SSI, Interplay, Surtech, Origin, like all of them. They featured all of the prominent 1980s and early 1990s computer game publishers. Because it's more of a coffee table style book, it does not have the depth even of a Stephen Kent. But the information in it that is there is generally fairly accurate and They have so many quotes and conversations with people that are not interviewed by any of these other sources because they were all computer game guys. Now, it's not 100% accurate, just like none of them are, and it's still primarily based on people's recollections, and recollections can be faulty. But it is a great starting point. That is actually the very first video game history book I read. When I was first getting interested in this stuff, which was, I think, in 2004, I was still in college at the time, Yeah, I bought that book in 2004. That's when I first was being like, you know, I like video games. I like history. I wonder if anyone's written a video game history book. I didn't even know. And I went to the local bookseller, and that's the one that happened to be there. If they'd had Kent there, I'd have bought that. (laughs) You know, I did buy Kent like a year or two later in a different bookstore, but it just didn't happen to be in the bookstore that I checked for this. And so High Score was my very first video game history book. And Kent was my second kind of where I started in video game history and kind of creating my own thing, which at that point was not the three-volume history that it's become, was Kent talks so much about 
the video game stuff. He's got really lots of stuff on Nintendo and Sega and Sony and Atari. High Score has a lot of stuff on all the computer game guys. It really focuses on the Electronic Arts and the Sierras and the Bruderboons and all of this. What if I were to smash these two books together? And I don't mean, like, plagiarize. I don't mean literally take text from this one and text from that one and mix them. But what if I were to smash these two books together to tell the bigger story of all of it? That's where I started. Those two books are very meaningful to me, even if I say today don't trust Kent. Those books are very meaningful because they were the first attempts to examine those two spheres, coin-op and console on the one hand, computer gaming on the other hand, in a more holistic way. So really, it's a fantastic look from what an inspiration it is, how video games inspired all sorts of things, not just creators, industry, but people like yourself who go, hey, I want to really understand more, learn more about this, and then I'm going to tell that other guy on the couch someday about (laughs) it, and he's going to be, that's interesting. I wonder if other people might find that interesting. Here, have a microphone. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So it's all Kent's fault that you have to listen to this podcast. That's right. And so that's kind of the second generation. I could also mention Masters of Doom, which came out in the same time period. We did a whole episode on that. Suffice it to say that unlike other books in this period, it still stands as one of the greatest video game history books ever written. It's beautiful, beautiful. I mean, it's not a history because it's not looking back from that far, but just as a kind of in-the-trenches journalistic blow-by-blow thriller account of the rise and fall of id software they're still around not the real fall but the rise and the stumble of id software it's just magnificent really it's the story of the two johns exactly so just to kind of end this you know the third phase i don't want to talk about it's still ongoing in my mind and it just explodes exponentially the one book I want to call out that's more recent and was one of the books that really kick-started this final phase of things is the book Replay by Tristan Donovan. Replay came out in 2010. It's having its 10-year anniversary in just a couple more months, which is kind of amazing for me to believe. That came out when I was in the middle of doing my research, and it's 10 years old. Replay is kind of like Kent 2.0, because he kind of did Kent in the way that one wishes Kent would have been done the first time around, and he kind of exemplifies the way things have changed. First of all, he tried to give coverage to all aspects of it, arcade, console, and computer game. Now, that doesn't mean he gives in-depth coverage to all of them through every step of their journey. You know, he focuses more on arcade stuff. When arcade stuff's big, he focuses less on it when it's less big. But he tries to get all of those pieces in. He was also the first author to really try to give an international perspective. What's going on in Japan? What's going on in Britain? He himself is British. What's going on in France? What's going on in Germany? What's going on in Eastern Europe? Again, you can only get so much in a single volume, so he has to pick and choose his battles even in all of those places, but he tries to give it a bigger perspective. He tries to put it a little more in context of what's going on in the wider world. He still relies a lot on interviews, and he conducts a lot of interviews for the book, But he tries to bring in other sources as well. And it feels like that's the beginning of this new phase where we're trying to get bigger contexts. We're trying to get global perspectives. 
we're trying to get all aspects of the industry and not just focus on one. And we're trying to fact check very carefully and cross reference very carefully and be as accurate as we possibly can. Replay still holds up pretty well. You know, I'm sure there's some inaccuracies in there, as there always are. Like I said, there's stuff in my book. There's already little things that I've noticed in my book that are not quite right. We'll have to get that up in a rata for you. Exactly. Because any big project's going to have that. But it's kind of the beginning of that new phase where it's like, okay, this industry's been around enough. We have some perspective on it. There's been enough written before us that we have a jumping off point that we can improve upon. Now let's get out there and refine this story and really get it into good shape. And a lot of the books that have followed have been in that vein. And some of them have been good books. Some of them have been bad books. Some of them have been just okay books. Some of them focus. Some of them are more broad. But the field's opening up. More and more people are getting in. And we're getting into a phase where we're, we're getting some really good work done. And I'd like to think that my book is some of that good work being done. But even aside from me, there's lots of other people involved now, which is just wonderful to see. But it all stems from that early stuff. You, you still owe a debt of gratitude to Kent and to DeMaria and to Herman and to Bloom and even to Cohen for all that came before. So that's kind of a look back. You know, here's some of the cool stuff. Here's why we don't always trust it, but why it's still good that each and every one of those things happened in their own way. They all have value. They all provide a snapshot of how things were viewed at the time. Absolutely. We've talked about books, talked about LucasArts. What do we talk about next time? When we have to do this again? For some reason, people like to hear us talk, or at least hear you talk. I don't know about myself. So it's been a long time since we've done a genre episode. We do those every so often. We don't do too many of them. We'll run through all the genres. But one genre that we definitely haven't talked about in detail is the uh, platforming genre. Now, we've hit on bits and pieces of it. We've done Nintendo history. We've done Miyamoto history. You can't do Nintendo and Miyamoto history without platformers. We talked about arcade adventures, which very much gets into the platformer vein. But we haven't done just kind of a start-to-finish look at platforming as a genre and kind of the major milestones there. They still go on now. Absolutely they do. So, uh, yeah, why don't we go on a platforming adventure? Again, it'll overlap some episodes, but at this point it's hard not to overlap a little bit, and the point is that we're stringing together facts in a different light. So, yeah, platforming. All right, we'll hop to it next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 